three, two, one. John Cleese right. is a comedian. <laughs> right. That's why. The I Ministry of this. Silly Karate, yes. I don't know. John Cleese, not Cleese. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to VHS Glow. Thank you for joining us. I'm Katie. With me are MJ and Darcy. Today we're going to talk about The Karate Kid. Bam! The cover of The Karate Kid VHS has Mr. Miyagi and Daniel-san locking eyes over Daniel-san's silhouette as he's in front of the ocean on a little pole poised for a crane kick. Roger Ebert called it one of the year's best movies, an exciting, heartwarming story. R.I.P. Roger Ebert. We get a few more shots in back, but then what it says is, A fatherless teenager faces his moment of truth in The Karate Kid. Daniel Ralph Macchio arrives in Los Angeles from the East Coast and faces the difficult task of making new friends. However, he becomes the object of bullying by the Cobras, a menacing gang of karate students, when he strikes up a relationship with Allie, Elizabeth Shue, the Cobra leader's ex-girlfriend. Eager to fight back and impress his new girlfriend, but afraid to confront the dangerous gang, Daniel asks his handyman Miyagi, Noriyuki Pat Morita, whom he learns is a master of the martial arts, to teach him karate. Miyagi teaches Daniel that karate is a mastery over the self, mind, and body, and that fighting is always the last answer to a problem. Under Miyagi's guidance, Daniel develops not only physical skills, but also the faith and self-confidence to compete despite tremendous odds as he encounters the fight of his life in the exciting finale to this entertaining film. So, MJ, you chose The Karate Kid for us. Do you want to talk a little bit about why? Sure. Well, I think first, The Karate Kid is absolutely an iconic movie. I mean, I think that everybody sort of has, you know, the crane kick potentially as a reference point. Daniel-san. Also, I feel like it introduced the phrase name-san to an entire generation of people. Basically, it really feels like it's reverberated, especially throughout my childhood and and, you know, and other early millennials, late Gen Xers like me. It certainly inspired me to want to do <laughs> karate when I was a kid. And so I ended up doing judo for a bit, which really just led me down this path of being super interested in various parts of Japanese culture. Honestly, it's kind of hard to overstate the different influences that Karate Kid has had on my life. But it's been 20 years <laughs> or more since I've seen it. And so I think some of it was, I don't even remember <laughs> exactly everything that happened in the movie. And so I really wanted to revisit this classic, this thing that really influenced my life in a lot of different ways. And also, you know, Cobra Kai has come out in the past year or two. And that's actually been like, right, so good. And that's been really fun to watch as well. And so it just felt like this was perfect moment to watch it again. Ax on, ax off. Darcy, had you seen Karate Kid? What was your Karate Kid experience? It was similar. I don't think I had seen it since I was a kid. So going on well over 20 years ago. I remember just kind of the training montage. I think that was what stuck in my mind the longest. And it also probably is what motivated me to ask my mother if I could be in karate. Her answer was no. So that did not pan out. But yeah, I mean, whatever. That's the truth. (laughs) They were trying to get me into dancing. It's weird because I... 
I had a long-standing crush on Ralph Macchio. And that was a long-standing crush, even though I don't think I've actually seen this movie since I was probably no older than seven or eight years old. So that's interesting. But yeah, I was excited to watch this mainly because of Cobra Kai, which I started to watch. I haven't finished it, but it is of the moment. And I still apparently have a crush on Ralph Macchio, which is very confusing. What about you, Katie? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I definitely saw Karate Kid as a child at some point. Also, Wax On, Wax Off is part of the... Yes. Oh, that too. There's a lot of jokes. It's become one of those cultural touch points where you hear the reference, but you might not have seen the original. And I think I definitely saw this as a kid in the 80s, but I grew up with martial arts anyway. I don't think a catalyst in the same way as it was for YouTube. I don't remember much Ralph Macchio. I do remember Mr. Miyagi vividly. (laughs) The idea of having a wise Japanese teacher was very appealing to me as a kid in karate because Asian people have more authentic martial arts knowledge than my white dad. MJ, what was The Karate Kid really about? I'm just going to take the obvious, I don't know, I feel like this is the cliche that the movie presents us, but basically my little summation of it is that it's offense is the best offense, or offense is the best defense, rather, versus defense is the best offense. It's a battle of styles. I mean, that's what the movie is about, because I think that although it looks like it's about a lot of other things, and it is, the actual karate drama is really two senseis fighting it out with each other using their students as proxy soldiers. So one teacher (laughs) is the Rambo wannabe who has cut off sleeves and was former military veteran and he instructs his students, he says, okay, what is karate about? It's about defending yourself. What's the best way to defend yourself? To strike first, strike hard, sensei. And so his students go out into the world and they embody that. And so when they are threatened, that's what they do. They strike first and they strike hard. And so on its surface, even though the teacher of the Cobra Kai says that it's about protecting yourself, it's really about preemptively striking people, which we could go so into how that belief in the 80s, I think, influenced a lot of (laughs) geopolitics and that it really is, seems like... (laughs) something that resonates far beyond that movie. And so that is one side of the conflict. The other side of the conflict is Mr. Miyagi, who is a man who has experienced deep tragedy in his life via the internment camps and via the loss of his wife. And he is quiet and reserved. And so he's kind of the opposite of the Cobra Kai teacher in that he acts only once somebody has exhibited a need. And one of the needs that Daniel in the movie has is to be protected. And so Mr. Miyagi physically interposes himself between Daniel and some Cobra Kai students at one point to protect him. And so I think that it is setting up this conflict between styles. And this is literally stated in the movie when Mr. Miyagi and Daniel walk into the Cobra Kai dojo. (laughs) And Mr. Miyagi is like, hey, could you call off your students and have them stop harassing Daniel? And the Cobra Kai teacher is basically like, fight me for it. <laughs> you like matching, Mr. Lawrence? Yes, Sensei! Uh, no more fighting. This is a karate dojo, not a knitting class. You don't come in my dojo and drop a challenge and leave, old man. Now, you get your boy on the matter, you and I will have a major problem. Too much advantage. Your dojo. Name a place. Tournament. 
You got real nerve, old man. Real nerve. But I think we can accommodate you. Can't we, Mr. Lawrence? Yes, Sensei. And so <laughs> Mr. Miyagi is like, okay, I will time and place make it the tournament. And instead of us fighting, we'll have our students fight. And that's the premise of the movie. And then it's about basically can Mr. Miyagi train Daniel in his style fast enough so that he can <laughs> defend himself. I think it's also really interesting getting into geopolitics that are beyond maybe what the movie is. But Japan is was the pacifist nation at the time. The United States had really preemptively dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then Japan more or less renounced war and baked it into its constitution. And so it's not that Japan didn't have people who really thought that it should have a military. Interestingly, there was a writer, Yukio Mishima, who tried to stage a mini coup within the military and then committed suicide after it failed. There were reactionary forces still present in Japan. And definitely some of those reactionary forces have emerged more in the 21st century. But at the time the movie was made, Japan didn't have a military that had a self-defense force. And so I think that oh. it's it's really interesting to sort of see Mr. Miyagi and the Cobra Kai instructor whose name I'm oddly blanking on. John Kreese. John Kreese. John Kreese as emblematic of the different nations' military approaches. And it's also very interesting that the movie is about the defensive approach winning, ultimately. that The message of the movie is that pre- preemptive striking is harmful and dangerous and also ineffective. And I guess the final thing that I think the movie is about is this concept of toughing it out, that if you strike first, you might avoid distress. Maybe you'll defeat your enemies before they have a chance to attack you. But to defend means that you have to suffer first. It means that you have to get attacked first. You have to get beaten up first. You have to react to somebody's violence against you. And so that you need to tough that out. You also have to have the resiliency to come back from like that kind of attack. Because if you're striking first and you have no mercy and you are priding yourself on that, then you've never really developed the resiliency that you need to function defensively, which you can kind of see at the tournament. Yes. Yeah, 100%. What to me is one of the most moving scenes in the movie isn't the scene where Daniel knocks out his opponent in the finals with a lucky kick, but the scene where he steps Mm -hmm. back onto the mat. That's the thing. You gave it your best shot and I'm still here. And because I'm here, I'm not giving up. They cheated in a sense, you know, by doing an illegal Mm -hmm. strike. But also, Carice is probably the kind of person who would be like, there are no illegal strikes. Rules are bullshit. We fight like it's real life. And if I want (laughs) to sweep your leg, I'm going to have my students sweep your leg. But Daniel got back up again. And so that's why I think that it's really interesting to compare the backdrop that the students are these proxy (laughs) soldiers in a battle between Mm -hmm. styles and that the styles go beyond the movie itself. You could say that one is a very American approach mm-hmm. to warfare and one is, at least in the latter half of the 20th century, the sort of Japanese approach, which was pacifist. Not that you aren't mm-hmm. going to protect yourself, but that you are going to wait to get attacked first. And then the consequence of that is that you have to be resilient and that sometimes it's just about outlasting the people you're up against. And so that's what mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting, that the movie was basically about offense is the best defense versus defense is the best. 
best offense. And I think that the movie's verdict is pretty clear that it's the latter. So you're positing that this is Miyagi versus Chris representing yes. Japan and potentially the East versus America and the West. Mm-hmm. What do you make of the fact that Miyagi himself was a veteran just in a different world? Chris was Vietnam, I believe, and then Miyagi was World War II. So Miyagi is also a veteran. And then also, a follow-up question, what do you make of Chris and Miyagi not really being aware of each other until Miyagi intervenes on Daniel's behalf and tries to proactively stop the bullying? So many thoughts. I think what's fascinating is that Pan and also Mr. Miyagi personally experienced the mayhem and distrust caused by preemptive attacks. And I'm thinking here of both the Mm -hmm. atomic bomb, but also the internment camps. The internment camps were we are going to round up a bunch of people who have committed no crime and we are going to take away their farms, take away their property. We're going to put them into camps in the California desert and that's it. And after the war ended, they Mm -hmm. let them go. But for a lot of them, they didn't give them their property back. A lot of them lost significant wealth, had to move across the United States to places like Minnesota, Chicago, the Midwest. And Mr. Miyagi says he also lost his wife during this. And so he's personally suffered a lot. The consequences of people preemptively striking him. And in spite of that, he doesn't because I think he really believes in the power of self-defense and restraint. And ultimately, I think he really believes that it's a weakness to have to strike first because it comes from a lack of resilience. It comes from a lack of preparedness. And so I think that when he meets John Kreese, the sensei of the Cobra Kai, he's very confident. And he's like, I'm going to take this untrained boy and this untrained boy is going to beat you because basically all I have to get him to do is outlast you. And because you have sucker punched your way through life, you don't know what it's like to take a punch. And so he's like, all I have to do is get you to take a punch and you'll fold. And I think that that's what's really interesting. But also, I mean, not that John Kreese didn't experience tragedy, although we don't really learn much about his backstory, at least in The Karate Kid, probably more in Cobra <laughs> not Kai. Not till Cobra Kai. <laughs> yeah, not till Cobra Kai. Well, I saw an ad yesterday. It was for the U.S. military or whatever. And it was one of those ads that's focused on telling you that the military builds self-discipline and character and whatever. The tagline was this really tired looking soldier. And the tagline was the fight is within. And I thought that that was really interesting because the U.S. military puts a lot of pressure. And of course, you know, every military, Japanese military too, but on individual soldiers to sort of be strong and resilient. Yes. But the culture actually isn't really about maintaining resilience. And so John Kreese, yeah. I think, feels like the victim of a system that kind of broke him. And I think the difference is that Mr. Miyagi found a way to reconcile with his suffering. The response is not that I don't want to ever suffer again. And so I'm going to just lash out at anything that I think could hurt me versus, you know what? I don't think anything can hurt me as bad as things already have. And so I think I'm all right. Yeah. Feels very profound movie in certain respects. Yeah, it really does because it offers this different way of being to the extent that I think it's a really, and maybe I'm viewing this through the lens of Cobra Kai, but it really is like a scathing indictment of toxic masculinity and specifically that American toxic masculinity that is very fragile, is very strike first, no mercy, but also you have no support from the people around you really. You can see kind of at the tournament, John creases when he orders his student to take out Daniel's knee. You can kind of see the look on that kid's face. And then he immediately, when he does strike out that knee, which is an illegal move and gets him disqualified, he apologizes profusely 
profusely. He gets down next to Daniel. He apologizes profusely. You can see it again when Kreese orders Johnny to sweep Daniel's injured leg in their final match. You can see the look of horror in Johnny's face. Yeah. Which is probably part of the reason why he works as this redeemable character yes. in Cobra Kai. He hasn't been dehumanized. Yeah. I mean, yeah. not yet, but he's on his way, right? And that's what's... So you can see the direct effect of this individualism causing these atrocities on yeah. the geopolitical scale, but these really dark, you know, the representation of that becomes this unethical yeah. fighting behavior and these proxy child soldiers yeah. <laughs> in this sensei v sensei yes. war. Yeah, I yeah. completely agree. It does, I think, come down to American individualism. Both of these teachers or mentors are coming at this entire situation from different motivations. John is, I think, like Katie said, embodying that individualistic, egocentric approach where what is he getting out of this? It's not that he's passing on wisdom that should be carried on throughout the history of his dojo. It's really getting a trophy to say that he's the best. It begins and ends with him. Whereas Mr. Miyagi, in a number of different ways, his motivation is really that he needs kind of someone to mentor as much as Daniel needs a mentor. And that is kind of the opposite of this other group. What he's actually doing is taking some of his lessons, good and bad, from his life and passing it on to the next gen. And it's coming, I think, from a place that's less about him and just more about actual mentorship. It's actually thinking big picture. It's actually just passing on, hopefully, some better morals, a little less individualistic. He's thinking outside of himself for sure. Well, he sees himself as integrated with nature yeah. and the global system to an extent that I don't think that John Kreese, that sensei is all about individual glory, about getting the trophy, about exerting his dominance over his students. He's not a mind-body kind of <laughs> no. guy. <laughs> He's not He's a holistic not. dude. <laughs> but you know what he can't do? I'm confident. They didn't show him attempting, but I'm pretty confident he cannot catch a fly with chopsticks. And that says it all. Although although Mr. Miyagi, yeah. I don't think can either. Oh, wait, you make a good no. point. Only Daniel-san can. <laughs> Daniel-san did. And then Mr. Miyagi shows resentment and annoyance, right. which I thought was interesting, mm-hmm. right? I agree, because it's not, he's human. Mm-hmm. He's growing as well. It wouldn't a fly swatter be easier? Man who catch fly with chopstick accomplish anything. You ever catch one? Not yet. Could I try? <laughs> if wish. Hey, 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 Mr. Miyagi, look! Look! <laughs> you begin a luck. What do you think the creators of the movie were trying to say with his response to his inability? You know, it's the journey, not the destination, is the cliche. What's the point of catching a fly with chopsticks? It's not to catch the fly. It's to... <laughs> to focus your attention it's some of it feels like the point is the futility of it that he's more trying to focus his focus on the fly and then he is trying to swat it and that when you catch it now it's not there anymore and now you've killed a fly so yeah. i don't know like i thought it was really really interesting choice there and i guess it does raise the question of well maybe mr miyagi could have caught it all along you know and chose yeah. not to i don't yeah. know maybe it was his meditation and then daniel comes in having been raised in a 
America in our culture and gets goal oriented about it and it destroys the exercise completely. Yes, and destroys the exercise. I felt like that was one way to read the annoyance is, oh my God, this American kid did the thing that I couldn't even do. And Mr. Miyagi even says beginner's luck. But I think the other way is that's not the point. The point is to do something that requires really careful focus over and over again. And to be in that moment, right? Not chasing the outcome, but being in the moment. Exactly. Yeah. But it did feel like it really humanized him to a degree where even the mystical magic karate sensei gets annoyed. And drunk. And drunk. Talks about his dark past. So I'm interested now in what other people thought the movie was about. And so Darcy, you were talking a little bit about Mr. Miyagi and the chopsticks with the fly. And so I'm just curious, in addition, what did you think the movie was about? When I first watched it, one of the things that I was thinking about, and this is probably because we also recently watched Bloodsport with Jean-Claude Van Damme. I was just thinking about how there's this kind of redundant theme of cis white American men becoming the beneficiaries of generational traditions from their teachers who are for different reasons, but they're both these father figures who have had a disruption in their line. They both have lost sons. So they didn't have someone through their ancestry or their own family who they could pass on their traditions to and their story. So enter white man who suddenly, without that much resistance, both become the replacements apparently for their like own sons. And so as I was just watching this, that was something that was kind of in the back of my mind. I was thinking about it. So then I was starting to research it more. And I don't know if I've ever seen The Karate Kid 2, but I was reading the plot line and thus got a little bit more of Mr. Miyagi's backstory. So I'm still kind of sorting through my thoughts on these, but my first take on it was this story is just white men appropriating other cultures. And of course, they have to be the heroes. And it was kind of annoying and predictable. (laughs) But there's a little bit more. I'm not saying that's not true. Just to be clear, I definitely think there is an element here of that. But Mr. Miyagi's story, I think, is interesting because what I actually think it's more about now is America kind of just whitewashing Americans or America's treatment of Japanese American people. So I'm going in a different direction there a little bit. But yeah, I just kind of feel like, oh, it throws in just enough detail where it just kind of addresses the reality, but then really doesn't address the reality of the internment camps. It has Mr. Miyagi as a World War II vet who won medals, like the Medal of Honor. He was part of this one, really the most decorated group from World War II was the Japanese American group that I don't know their whole history, but what I did read about was they went to a few different countries. They ended up being a big part of liberating a lot of the concentration camps in Europe. They focus on the good feel-good stories without really ever addressing the fact that America's response was to put thousands and thousands of Japanese-American people in these camps. His history actually involves, I think it's a great ancestor of his, was a fisherman, he comes from a line of fishermen, and his ancestor got drunk and was on a boat that somehow floated over to China and he stayed there for a while and learned Chinese martial arts and then eventually, like a decade later... (laughs) 
came back and taught his own family these arts. Okay, I have to watch the movie before I have too many opinions on that, but I have questions already. When it's touching on his history, it's through this drunken stupor. That's even in this movie. When he talk, he kind of refers to his wife and his lost child. Well, she didn't die from being in the camp, exactly. She died from childbirth. Well, there we go. I just kind of feel like my takeaway from this is it's another unfortunate example in a missed opportunity where we could have had a story that actually did take responsibility, I think, for some of the realities. I'm going to watch Karate Kid 2. If we don't do this together, I'll do it on my own. But at some point, I want to get a fuller picture here and I'm going to analyze that more because I think we're avoiding the truth and I actually can see this even bleeding into Cobra Kai where Cobra Kai Mm. as much as I enjoy it and I haven't finished it yet if you follow this story of these lessons learned which apparently originally came from China through Mr. Miyagi's drunken ancestor to Mr. Miyagi through all of this American (laughs) situations that we're not really going to apparently talk about much and then he drunkenly refers to it to this new mentee and then Cobra Kai picks up and now we have not Japanese guys competing to open up their own successful dojos. We've lost something here and we're not talking about it. Now maybe Cobra Kai goes there. I'm not done. But I do have a lot of questions. I'm still trying to figure out. I don't know that I can say what it's about. I think more what I'm focusing on is, wow, it seems like there's a lot missing here is kind of my takeaway. Do you think that what's missing is that it's not truly grappling with the legacy of the internment camps? and that mm-hmm. it, Yes, exactly. The, the tragedy seems like it's more happenstance and not yeah. really, it's not talking about directly the cruelty of the war. Yeah, and that there is, there's cultural appropriation which I would say at its worst is when the oppressive dominant element just feels entitled to take from another culture as though it was theirs to begin with. There's this question about the authenticity of karate. The karate came to Okinawa. Did you say it was some drunken? Yeah. Uh, so can we talk about that? Because that makes me think, well, Kreese is also a drunken lout too. So, you know, maybe There's that's like the proper there. way the, the inheritance of karate. Wait, is Kreese like a so drunken lout? He is. he? Yeah. Okay. Is he drunken? I, I mean, know. I feel like it fits his character, but I don't know that I'm recalling any scenes where he is. In Cobra Kai, at least there's more scenes with Johnny drinking inappropriately early in the morning. I made some notes on the original. I don't even know how many generations removed from Mr. Miyagi. This is an ancestor from 1625. So, you know, quite a while ago. Named Shimpo. Have either of you watched Karate Kid 2? Oh, yeah. Is that part of the plot? Do you already know about Shimpo? <laughs> oh. Okay. I genuinely don't remember any mention okay. of that because there was a lot happening gotcha, in gotcha. Karate Kid too. Daniel immediately makes a new enemy. He has a new girlfriend. There's a hurricane. There's generational trauma that, again, is not super addressed. <laughs> I don't know the source material for all of this. I got it from the internet, so that's always encouraging. But I don't know which movies it's in or whatnot. But like apparently the backstory is that Mr. Miyagi learned karate from his father, who was a fisherman from the Isles of Okinawa. His father's relative, probably a few generations back, 1625, Shimpo, got drunk on sake, floats to the coast of China, learns the secrets of Chinese martial arts. And about a decade later, Shimpo returns to Okinawa with a Chinese wife and kids and develops a style of karate that would be passed down for generations. And their family line continues to be fishermen. That's their trade. Shimpo 
learns from Chinese martial arts, first of all. So just again, kind of seems like the Japanese part of the story is getting a little bit written out. I have questions. I don't know yeah. the history well enough, but this is something I want to dig into more. So Mr. Miyagi then falls in love with his friend's future wife. And of course, that goes against custom. Not supposed to. He decides he's going to go for it, which is like, no, you can't do that. His friend says, we're going to fight over this. He says, no, I'm not going to fight. I'm going to run and emigrate to the United States and end up in Hawaii. I just kind of feel like the backstory is not painting Mr. Miyagi very well at all. He ends up in the United States. He falls in love with someone else. His wife ends up in the internment camp while he ends up in World War II being a hero. His wife dies during childbirth and his son also does not survive. My feeling on this is that they set Mr. Miyagi up to be a kind of pathetic character. And he's not. He's great in many ways. But his backstory, bringing in the alcohol, not explaining, there's just nothing about Japan here that they actually honor. And that's where we get into the feelings of like, well, there's cultural appropriation, there's sharing that can be a respectful treatment (laughs) in an interaction between different cultures and histories that can be done well. But this isn't sharing. They literally just kind of cut out almost all the actual Japanese part of his history. And I find that questionable. You brought up Mr. Miyagi running from Okinawa, which I had forgotten, but is a plot point in Karate Kid 2, right? It is. That he ran away from his childhood bully. Do you think, though, there's a way in which Mr. Miyagi is trying to answer that feeling of cowardice? Yeah. The more I read about it and thought about it, I was like, oh, I actually think Mr. Miyagi is someone who needs Daniel as much as Daniel needed him. That's Mm -hmm. I think how they actually wrote it. He does have his own demons. He has his own struggles. The fly might be symbolic of that. (laughs) I really love the storyline. I love the characters. But I do honestly think that Mr. Miyagi should have represented maybe a little less neediness and a little bit more of his strength could come from his actual heritage and background. If you really kind of look at the arc of his story, I'm finding a lot of kind of negative stereotypes and not enough propping up of the culture he actually comes from and not enough ownership of like America's role in all of this. And ultimately, why is he training? Why did he pick up Daniel? It sounds like he did it because he had all these demons is kind of my takeaway. And then I find that to be just disappointing. It's interesting to ascribe this. It's almost like Mr. Miyagi is watered down by American guilt. Exactly. He takes on a student slash son because his son died in the internment camp which again we never addressed it's just some crap that America can do to you and you'll still love America and accept the Medal of Honor and live there and take on this student who's American and he's the better son you have your poor sad dead son and then you have your bright young American son right there's this stereotype of inscrutable mystical you know he doesn't explain his methodologies until it's already far too you're just supposed to do the thing you're just supposed to trim the tree and that's where i actually to make a bonsai like, like yeah. that's interesting to me that's where i feel like he actually does kind of represent a certain thing that actually does come from japan there's this element of him that's grounded his strength and he's grounded by this holistic mind body worldview which really does have deep roots in japan and they don't tie it back to that other than he's like this and he's japanese they don't say it they don't go there enough 
I think. I'm going to give it some time and watch more of the whole arc of Karate Kid before I have super, super strong opinions on this. But, you know, just watching Cobra Kai, I feel like we're still missing the actual different worldviews being properly represented here between East and West, essentially. I think it's really interesting, though, that there are these overlapping worlds that Daniel is American, but he, I think, is an Italian American, Mm -hmm. like from New Jersey. Uh So he's a foreigner in California. He's not a native Californian so he's kind of an immigrant. Mr. Miyagi is from Japan but he's really from Okinawa which was its own island nation until it was Mm -hmm. basically annexed by Japan not that long ago in the scheme of things like five or six hundred years ago although I'm just totally winging that. Who gets this martial heart knowledge from China? It's really interesting to think about who is truly from anywhere in this movie. Daniel moves into this apartment with his mom leaving all of his friends and family behind. They're both kind of immigrants in a sense. They're both isolated and they also both come from families that at one point weren't considered truly Okinawans. I don't think were considered truly Japanese, you know, at at first. Mm -hmm. In the same way that Italian Americans weren't considered truly American or truly white. If you read an old Agatha Christie, it's got a lot of weird (laughs) anti-Italian racism where you're like, oh, wow. (laughs) That's okay. Cool. 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 Thanks, Agatha Christie for totally dropping in that turd in the middle of my like you know yeah the 30s it was legit like oh so exotic so latin so latin yeah so latin and i feel like the movie though and i'm just curious on people's thoughts it's trying to toe that line i think between fetishization or tokenism or ooh how spooky and oriental and Mm -hmm. magical versus he's just a dude who had a lot of bad stuff happen to him and he kind of needs to work through it like a lot of other Mm -hmm. people do. On the one hand, it feels like we're just sweeping the Japanese side of things like the war itself and very directly talking about that, sweeping all of that under the rug. But on the other hand, it's like, but he's also just a dude. So can we just treat it like, I don't... Leave Miyagi alone. <laughs> Miyagi alone. <laughs> right. I don't know. Is it part of this kind of like colorblind ethos that was pervasive? Oh, that was in, so big in the 80s. In the 80s like, yeah, that multiculturalism yeah. and that like whole... Because you get exposure to other things, which yeah. is nice, but it also has the effect of like kind of whitewashing yes, things. Exactly. That's how you get the retrofitted idea of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. being the nonviolent one and like Malcolm X being the militant so, scary one, right? Oh my God, right. And when you talk about Japanese Americans and Asian Americans in general, I think there's this model minority myth and Miyagi very much for me fits mm, into yeah. that where he is an American patriot. He has this medal of honor. He has this American son slash student slash protege. It's interesting because it's not that simple either because he does have this very non-American way of looking Mm -hmm. at things and of living his life. Like he has a much better integrated experience with the world to some extent despite the thrash in his earlier life. So he lives in a different way. He can enjoy the moment. He's not chasing after things and being very goal-oriented. There's that moment where Daniel asks about his belt and he of course means your rank Mm -hmm. in karate. And he's just like, no, I got this at JC Penny. It was three ninety nine. <laughs> so he has this not status oriented way of viewing things. Yeah. At the same time, he is very palatable to mm-hmm. white America. Yeah. And I would say it's cool that the movies do side clearly <laughs> on what I would consider 
the good side where the true winner is Daniel, but not because he wins. Yes, obviously he does, but he's the winner because of his confidence. Mr. Miyagi won not because Daniel did a good job, but because Daniel is now confident. It does end up on the right side of things. I have mixed feelings. I'm sorting it out still. <laughs> I want to hear the take from other people that are not just white people analyzing this. So I'm actually going to seek that out, I think, and follow up. So Katie, I want to hear what your take on what this movie is really about. Maybe my hypothesis is a bit closer to MJ's in that it's kind of the obvious one. I think it's about patrilineal hegemony. There are a ton of father-son relationships that are functional to varying degrees and healthy to varying degrees. Obviously, we have Mr. Miyagi and Daniel-san as kind of our central father and son, because again, Mr. Miyagi lost his son in childbirth, his wife's childbirth in the internment camp. Daniel is is his chosen son. I think also karate in general and athletics have this, the coach-athlete relationship can frequently be very paternal. It can be, this is my sports dad. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. It's so true. <laughs> I'm sports baby. And they provide emotional support to you. They provide instruction on how to see the world. Very rarely is it only about the technique of the thing that you're doing. It's also these life lessons. Mm. You can see this across all of our sports movies have life lessons. Some hometown coach has folksy wisdom. Some karate master has some profound wisdom to offer. We see that in this movie as well. And I specifically call it not parent-child, but father-son, because these are really male-centric. Mm-hmm. Karate, at this time in particular, is a very male-centric sport. Mm-hmm. I was frequently, when I was a kid, the only girl in my class. And I think that the relationships that we're seeing, Daniel-san and Mr. Miyagi, and then John Kreese and his students, particularly Johnny Lawrence, that also has a very strong father-son vibe to me. Again, like MJ was saying, comparing and contrasting these different father and son relationships. Daniel-san and Mr. Miyagi are pretty functional. Mr. Miyagi is providing a different overall non-toxic masculinity. We are able to cry when we're drunk. We're (laughs) able to care for others. You can see Daniel caring very deeply for his mother, Lucille, who's a single mom. And you can see him communicating at a pretty high EQ level with his love interest, Allie. He's pretty frank about his feelings relative to the dudes that I knew in high school who would be like, let's hang out indefinitely. (laughs) (laughs) So he was clear about his feelings for her. So Daniel's son has some good women role models in his life. He also just has this need for Mr. Miyagi. He's angry. He's being bullied. He's not the alpha here. He's low on this hierarchy. And I think that there's this undercurrent of him not being man enough. He has the single mom. And if you recall, even still, but in the 80s and 90s in particular, there was a lot of anxiety around latchkey kids. There was a lot of anxiety around the absence of strong father figures. Mm -hmm. With the divorce rates rising, the worry is how will our boys learn to be men? So the karate kid posits a few different ways. There's the kind of Mr. Miyagi way, where overwhelmingly is pretty healthy. There is that one scene, do you remember by the lake where he's like you hit like girl (laughs) I didn't feel great about that yeah I don't either I feel sad about that (laughs) 
I was kind of bummed yeah. about that. But Mr. Miyagi is like super handy. He does gardening. He makes his little bonsai trees. He embroidered. Do you remember? It was kind of a throwaway line, but he embroidered the gi that Daniel eventually wears mm. with the bonsai in the back to represent that alternative masculinity. So he sews, he gardens. He's very handy. He made Daniel's oh, shower. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah oh, his like that? Halloween costume, yep. the shower. Yeah. yeah, Mr. Miyagi makes it oh, for him. Wow. I that. Oh, Daniel-san, happy Halloween. You like? Yeah, it's nice. Has school today. Oh, that's happening. Samara, you're not going? Nah. How come? I'm not into dancing that much. I don't feel like it anyway. Oh, Daniel-san, you're too much by yourself, not good. Not by myself. It was you. To make honey, young bee need young flower, not old prune. I don't have a costume anyway. Mm. If you have costume, you go? Yeah, maybe if I wanted the invisible man. Invisible man? Yeah, you know, so no one would see me. So he does a lot of caring emotionally for Daniel San, in addition to teaching him how to defend himself. And it is defending himself. It's not aggressively attacking anyone. It is defense. So we have this way of looking at things. And the karate that Mr. Miyagi knows himself is past down through the fathers of his family. Mm-hmm. From Shimpo on down, it's been passed through the fathers. And Mr. Miyagi is passing this down to Daniel. And I think part of the reason that one scene where Mr. Miyagi is opening up and talking about his past, his wife and infant son dying in the internment camp and his service in World War II and all of that kind of darkness in his past, it hits really hard because it upends that father-son dynamic. Daniel's son has to care for Mr. Miyagi as Mr. Miyagi drunkenly cries himself to sleep thinking about his past sorrows. There's certainly a lot of growing up that Daniel has to do in the movie that maybe other kids his age might not be expected to do. He does have to take care of his mom to a degree. And mm-hmm. I think that that's emblematic pushing the car, <laughs> you know? And Oh my gosh, yes. That brought me back so hard because we... <laughs> My dad refused to buy new cars ever, so we had a string of ultra shitty cars that did require some finagling to start, and pushing them was definitely one of the things that we did. Oh my gosh. That was very lower middle class relatable. Yeah, right. His mom works really hard, clearly Mm -hmm. is overworked and kind of stressed and doesn't really have a lot of time to give him emotional support, right? She ditched him at the diner. She ditched him. She did. She was just like, I gotta go. Bye. She didn't even tell. Did he have money? to pay for both of them? (laughs) What was that? And I think what's also interesting is meanwhile, behind him, there are the people from that dojo who are clearly looking to fight him. And Mm -hmm. she's like oblivious to that as well. Right. Right. She doesn't know that he's in danger because she's too distracted with providing for him. I think it's really interesting how mature Daniel has Mm -hmm. to be and probably is in desperate need of somebody who can give him a little bit of emotional support or at least keep his mind 
off of the fact that there are these people who want to beat him up. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It is really interesting, though, that in terms of versions of manhood, that Mr. Miyagi does isn't like, oh, your job isn't to provide emotional support. It's really instructing him that his job is to continue to do that, to even yeah. give Mr. Miyagi emotional support. Yes. And yeah, I mean, that yeah. scene could totally be read about Daniel having internalized and now embodying the lessons that Miyagi mm-hmm. has taught him to complement his win at the tournament in the kind of physical, spiritual sense, but also on the emotional level, that scene where he's taking care of Mr. Miyagi is that's the value system yeah. that Miyagi has taught him. There's this solidarity, this reciprocity, I think, that is there. Hearing you talk about Crease and his students, there is no reciprocity. It's you're on your own. Oh, yeah. You lose concentration to fighting your dead meat. Yes, Sensei. What? Yes, Sensei. Get up. Give me 60 push-ups on your knuckles. What are you looking at? Finish him! We do not train to be merciful here. Mercy is for the weak. Here, on the street, in competition. A man confronts you, he is the enemy. An enemy deserves no mercy. Chris is a completely different kind of daddy, right? <laughs> He's the daddy that Chris, you're gonna. Yeah, hate what is when the what is yeah, what is the yeah, Chris's daddy yeah. style? Chris is all about that view of masculinity and that view of individualism, asserting your dominance over other people. Mm. He's the boss who you do all the work and they take credit for your shit. He is the very overly adherent to hierarchical traditions, that kind of karate instructor where he's making them do knuckle push-ups, he's making them do things that they're not comfortable with. Earlier, we were talking about the look of horror on Johnny's face when Chris told him to sweep the leg. The previous kid, whose name escapes me, his disappointment in even having to, you know. But Chris has exerted his will to the point where he has created a little mini military of bullies who then themselves go out into their community and assert their will over other people. It's like generational trauma here. It fully is. So there's this emphasis on the strength, the lack of mercy. You can see the misogyny in the way that Johnny immediately picks out Daniel as a threat, even though at that little beach bonfire thing that looks super fun and that I would like, yeah, really like to do. Because <laughs> it's we're in Chicago and it's very snowy and it's like negative 13 degrees or something. And I've been in my house for almost a full year. So I would love to go to that beach bonfire with adults not teenagers i'm not a creep i don't want to i don't want to run in the sand either he plays soccer and stuff i just want the fire part where you sit around the fire and play songs or whatever that would be amazing but anyhow they're at this beach bonfire and Allie, played by elizabeth shoe daniel's love interest is johnny's ex-girlfriend they're no longer dating and yet johnny feels entitled to her to the point where he and his fellow cobra kai's menace daniel on dirt bikes beat him up i was afraid they were gonna run over him i'm glad they didn't they do push him down a hill in another scene which is a very dominance assertion to me they're on dirt bikes he's on a bicycle they run him out of the way because they have the right of way they are right right because might makes right in John Kreese's universe. So you can kind of see the abuse follow through. And if you watch Cobra Kai, you can definitely see how John Kreese has this very unforgiving worldview. He's potentially a Frank Duke style full of shit guy, though. He was special forces in Vietnam. But I mean, the impression I got in Cobra Kai was that was questionable. And I haven't seen like the most recent season, but it seems like he's got that kind of bloviating, strong, but ultimately false masculinity. Yes. So that's the competing. He's weak. He's yeah. 
He's know? actually the weakest one. He's weak, but you have to obey him without question. Even the fact that it's teenagers that he's found to assert exactly. his will over. He has to meet his match. There has to be a stronger power that can take down the crease. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I ultimately think it's Miyagi's worldview yeah. that takes over the crease. Don't ruin it for me. But if the crease <laughs> if the crease does not get taken down by the Miyagi worldview, I'm going to be very disappointed. It's interesting because I think, so these are the two like most obvious biggest ones. There are also like an assortment of other father-son relationships or parent-child relationships. There's Allie, the love interest, and her rich daddy. So that's a different facet. Not a daddy's knows best. A daddy oh. indulges baby. Oh. Oh, oh. Like, baby gets to do what she wants. (laughs) Like, she can slum it with this hood from Rosita. That's one relationship. There's also neighborhood-wise. So this takes place in LA, of course. And Encino is the rich suburb and then where Allie lives. And then where Daniel lives, that's in Rosita. That's the poorer working class one. So there's Daddy Encino versus Baby Rosita. (laughs) (laughs) There's some class dad. Daddy and rich baby. dad, poor dad. dad, rich dad, Aww. poor dad. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. There's that history teacher that I don't know what Daniel was really trying to do with that scene. Bore the Cobra Kai's with a history lecture given by this. <laughs> what was yeah. that? Yeah, that whole scene confused me. <laughs> so there's a bumbling history teacher, daddy. That daddy who like reads his World War Two. Mm-hmm. Yep. Histories. <laughs> Generally, World War Two is Battle of the Daddy. I'm sorry, oh. that's like so disrespectful. <laughs> I don't I mean, actually mean that because I, I recognize that there was the Holocaust and the internment camps and like horrific shit. But really, when you're talking about the battle of supremacy over the world, you are talking about this paternalistic mm-hmm. who gets to mm-hmm. rule. Monarchies are inherently this paternalistic thing. You do what you can to rule over your children, yep. your peasant children. Oh, God. And then there's also this man versus nature, which is another inherently paternalistic thing. While Miyagi integrates well, there is this interesting, to me, thread of exerting your will, making nature more perfect, making the bonsai you want to see rather than letting the tree be itself, redoing your yard such that it is pleasing to humans rather than just being whatever it is where it allowed to run wild. So there's also that. Those were all the daddies wow. I could spot. There's so many daddies. <laughs> so many daddies. <laughs> Amazing. The most interesting thing to me, though, even in this patrilineal hegemony view, where the father, mentor, ruler is prime, and you have all these children, students, protégés, peasants, mm-hmm. you know, subjects, it's still interesting that the good side, the heroes here, are pretty emphatically against that kind of hierarchy. Yeah. Like we talked about Miyagi having this alternate view of masculinity, this alternate view of integration with the world, this differing perspective. In as far as Daniel can integrate that into his own life, he's more successful. He's able to win the things, but more than that, not care as much about winning the things, just living the way, living the Miyagi-Do way. Yes. I said daddy approximately 5,000 times this episode. I'm so sorry. None of them are sexual. (laughs) We got to do this outro. What did we say last time? Like, thank you for listening to us. Yeah, thanks for it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah.
Thank you for joining us for VHS Glow. Again, I'm Katie. With me are MJ and Darcy. Join us next time when we're talking about G.I. Jane, Woo-hoo! a.k.a. Darcy's favorite <laughs> genderfuck movie. Uh, it's going to be Ring great. the bell. Ring the bell, Darcy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I cannot wait. I saw G.I. Oh. Jane uh, in... The theme, so like 1999 or two, I think that was a 1999 movie. 2000 maybe. It was 97. Oh, really? I should have known that. I worked at Blockbuster when I saw it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Fancy yeah. movies. Wow. <laughs> Goodbye.